a couple of journeys um, in the car, road trips for me, that are um, kind of legendary in my life that I still get to take every once in a while are two places, New York City and uh, Niagara Falls. My brother lives near New York uh, City. He lives just outside in the suburb area. So uh, once a year, at least, I'm able to drive up there and we're able to drive up there and go see him. And then um, my whole family is from the Buffalo, New York area. So it hasn't been uh, but a few years. It's been a while, but but pretty much for most of my life, once a year, get to drive up to, to, to Buffalo, New York area and always try to make a trip to Niagara Falls. So Niagara Falls, Buffalo area, New York City, you know, keep those two things in mind. Now, both of those drives involve roads when I'm not quite as close to my destination as I want to be. But along the way, there's some just, you know, momentary treats where because the, the road gets lower or because we, we get high enough to see over, I'm able to see where I'm getting to. I'm able to see the, the skyscrapers of New York City from the ugliness of some of the New Jersey <laughs> highways. You know, I'm looking around and it's, it's just construction and concrete and pavement and it just, it's gross and all of a sudden, oh my gosh, you, you know, you just get this little vista of, look, there's, there's the skyscrapers, there's the Empire State Building, there's all this huge army of city, it's just beautiful, incredible, and that's where I'm going, and it's so exciting. Conversely, with Niagara Falls, you drive along the Niagara Highway, along the Niagara River, right, right away, from, you know, just a few minutes from Buffalo, and along the way, you get these peaks, you don't get the peaks to falls, but you get something that's almost cooler, you get to see the road, you know, the, the road just ends, the river just ends, you can't see over it, but you see all this fog, like, rushing up, all this mist rushing up and you know it's Niagara Falls you can almost hear the roar of it right there as you're going along so what's my whole point my point is this first Corinthians is a very concrete practical book and one of the reasons we chose it because it deals with the nitty-gritty issues in this church's life issues that we've engaged with either issues inside the church of reconciliation or divisiveness those things or issues outside of the church like uh sexual immorality and drunkenness and divorce and marriage and all these issues. It's, it's just full, chock full of all these nitty-gritty issues. But along the way, because Paul's taking us somewhere. He's not just taking us to work out these issues. He's taking us, he's trying to take us to Jesus. He's trying to help us get closer and closer to Jesus through what he's telling this church. Along the way, every once in a while, the road that we're on in Corinthians just opens up and you see Jesus, very clearly. You see him, you know, like the skyscrapers on that highway in New Jersey. Or you see him like the mist coming up in Niagara Falls. There he is, there he is, there he is. In those moments, I, I kind of called in my intro, neck-stretching moments. You know, you want to put your head out the window and just really take in that view. Really take in that view. Those moments are coming along here in this book. And, and I want to make sure that we, we, opened out, we open the window, we slow the car down, we put our necks out, and we take a really long view as we get to these moments. And we're in one of these moments right now. This passage, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. We went through it last time we talked about Corinthians. We're going we're gonna to stay there. Just another more week, I mean this week, we're going to stay there, roll down the window, put our necks out, and take another look. Because Jesus, suddenly, in 1 Corinthians 6, becomes very, very clear here. In a way that he's not always clear in the rest of the book. He's always there. you got to dig for him a little bit sometimes. But in, in right here, 1 Corinthians 6, particularly in verse 11, Jesus becomes extremely clear. And we just want to slow down, stretch our neck out, and look at him. 
So if you'll recall, last time we were in 6, we focused largely on this reality that starts in verse uh, 9 through 9 and 10 of the deception the Corinthians are in and how Paul wants this church and how the Holy Spirit wants all of us to know we can't say we're Christians if we consistently live, live as if we don't want to follow Christ, right? That was the, if you remember that message, it was the great deception. We talked about being suckers and being deceived. So Paul warns them, soberly and sternly, do not be deceived, right? Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters. We can move to that passage. We can move forward, forward. There it is. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Right? We've gone over that passage. We've unpacked each of those issues. But in the back end of the message, we looked at the end of last time we talked, we were in 1 Corinthians 6, we looked at verse 11. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Right there is a neck-stretching moment. Right here is where we want to roll down the window and put our head out of it and really take a long, long view. Because it was so crucial, if you guys remember at the back end of this message, that Paul wanted them not to see these, these contrasting these contrasting destinies in, in, these, in this passage, 9 through 11, as on one hand, a life of sin, or on the other hand, a life of righteous living, right? That's not what he's trying to present them with, right? He's not, in this little passage here, he's not saying, folks, it's either a life of sin or it's a life of righteous living fleeing sin, right? That's this dramatic, easy to, easy to pass by very quickly, dramatic moment. No, what Paul is saying is, Look, it's either a life of sin, that's verses 9 through 11, or it's a life saved by Jesus and empowered by the Spirit of God. Right? See that? Remember that? We talked about this. It's either a life of sin, domination, or it's a life saved by Jesus and empowered by the Spirit of God. And this is what I want us to focus on this morning. We've touched on this, right? This is the Niagara Falls. This is the Empire State Building view. I think it's not too great a thing to say that above all things we're called to do in our lives, this verse 11, this verse 11, and what it represents is probably the most important thing. I think it's, I I should boldly just say, it is the most important thing we can embrace. It is the most important thing we can see. It is the very goal of the Christian life to embrace what's in verse 11 here. The foundational daily call. This is my big point for today. The foundational daily call that's in this text and that's here for you and me is to hold on to who Christ is for us and to who we are because of him. The foundational daily call, the greatest battle that you and I are called to fight is to hold on to who Christ is for us and who we are because of him. Yes, there are many activities that God calls you and I to that are important. Reflecting on his word, prayer, chief among them, praising him, being with his people, giving and serving like we just talked about Sharing the gospel with others and our weaknesses even, like we just talked about. These all express walking with the Lord our God. But the most important endeavor of our lives and each day is right here in verse 11. It's leaning on, depending on, holding on to what verse 11 represents. And it's doing that, holding on to who we are in Christ, who he is for us, that makes any other endeavor of the Christian life fruitful and sustainable. And pleasing to God. Without this, without holding on to who Christ is for us and who we are because of him, everything else falls apart. 
Let's pray just for a moment and ask God to help us see this. Lord, I, I pray that as I, I unpack your word this morning, you would meet me with an ability, Lord God, not to be bold for the sake of me feeling good up here, but to be bold, Lord, because we are not ashamed of your gospel. For in your gospel is the power of salvation. In your gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It is the power of salvation. And it is the power that continues to sustain us in salvation. So please, God, give me clarity. Give me a humble heart to lean on you. Give me, Lord, the ability to worship you in the preaching of this word. Lord, I I self-interestedly want those things. I want to meet with you myself. But, Lord, I, I do. Because I'm new in you and I have your Sunday, I long for all of your children in this room to meet with you this morning. To see you and hear you in your word that we would all feast on Jesus this morning. That we would all be nourished by him and his grace this morning. Please do this in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So again, coming back to our main theme this morning, who Christ is for us and who we are Because of him in this passage, particularly in verse 11. See, I can come across a passage like this and and think about my gospel-centered history. And like I know to be gospel-centered. And I can just be like, oh yeah, check the dots and cross the T's and and, and those things. Here it is, gospel centrality, move along. Paul's talking about grace. He doesn't want us to be legalists. That's cool. Don't want to be performance driven. That's great. But I I think I I miss it if I rush too quickly through this. Because Paul is not just telling them truth here to be theologically correct. He's not arguing with him. Hey, you were this way, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the spirit of our God. So make sure you're remembering who you are in Christ. Paul is bringing healing to these folks. He is teaching them the solution to their sin. Paul is bringing healing to these folks and teaching them what the solution to their sin is. They are in significant bondage to these issues. In verses 9 through 10, all this immorality, this drunkenness, this swindling, this slander, everything, is, it's really got a grip on this church and these groups. And Paul is giving them the antidote the primary, the foundational antidote to find healing in who Christ is for them and who they are because of him. And if they will pay attention, if they don't drive by this, if they roll down the window and stick their neck out, if we do the same thing, we're going to find healing as well for what ails us. So let's listen. Not as if some three-verse argument is, is being thrown at us just to rush through, but as if these are the words of the most gifted of physicians, the Holy Spirit, applying healing to the most critical of wounds. Let's listen to these words again, as if the most gifted of physicians, who knows how critical our wounds are, our sin, our condemnation, our hopelessness, and he's applying healing to these most critical of wounds. I'm going to take it phrase by phrase here. Can we move on? Yeah, there it is. You were washed, Paul says. You were washed. Remember, you were washed. You were cleansed of the filth 
of your past life. You used to be covered by these things. These things you're now playing around with, you used to be covered by them. You were washed clean. This used to be what defined you and what you looked like. But it was all washed off of you. Away by God. You were in the sewer of sin. And God took you and he washed you with his own spirit through the water and the blood that came out of his son's wounds. You who are dabbling in the past that you used to be entrapped by, who are starting to be wrapped into that again, you were washed clean from that hatred, slander, drunkenness, impurity, lying, stealing, laziness, idolatries. You were washed clean. It's not who you are. You're clean. (laughs) This is amazing. He's talking to people who are living very dirty. And he's looking them straight in the eye and he's saying, you are clean. Then he says, you were sanctified. You were set apart, he's saying. That's what this word means, sanctified. It's agias. It means holy. It means other than. Set apart. You were not only washed, you were washed for a purpose. When God washed you, he didn't wash you just to let you get dirty again. No, when he washed you, he took you out of that former world of sin's dominion. And you were set apart from it to live in another world. You were placed in a new dominion. You are now in a new dominion of God's son. You now live in a new kingdom with a new king. God set you apart from that old kingdom so that you could go on living by the power and the righteousness of his kingdom. You were set apart for that. You were washed and you were set apart for a purpose. Your destiny, your future is different forever because you were set apart by God. And Paul says this most sweetest of words, you were justified. You are justified. You who are backsliding, running into your old sins, you must remember, Christ took all of those sins already. Past, present, and future. He put them on himself. And then in doing so, he made you righteous in him. He is your standing before God. He is your not guilty before God. All your sins, past, present, and future, on him, no longer on you. What you get is righteousness in Christ. You're walking back into that den of sin, but you actually stand holy and blameless before God. Righteous right now. How did all this happen? Paul says this happened in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Name refers to his character, his reputation, the core of who he is. He's the Lord. He is the authority as God's son to do all these things. This happened with the full authority under the full command of God the son. When he became Lord all over, we came in Lord over all through his death and resurrection. Lord, over your salvation and judgment. 
He's Jesus Christ. He's Jesus. He's the Savior. Yahweh saves. That's what his name means. He has the power to do all these things, to rescue you. And he's Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the king. He's the king of the universe. He's the king of your destiny. He's the one who paid for all of this and ensures that it will happen. And Paul says it happened by the spirit of our God. God's invisible power brought all this to bear in your actual experience. The Holy Spirit at work is always leading us towards what God isn't just declaring, what God is not just doing long ago that affects us now. The Holy Spirit is the one affecting it right now in our lives. God decreed it. The Father decrees it, commands it. Jesus purchases it on the cross 2,000 years ago. And the Spirit now, today, He is able to and He has and He will keep making it all a reality in your life. He lives in you. You experienced this. <laughs> you didn't just hear the gospel and go on and think of it as some math formula that's true. It gripped you. It made sense to you. It became a treasure to you. That was the Spirit of God. You didn't care about this before. Then suddenly the message came to you and you saw it with the eyes of your heart. It was real to you. It was desirable to you. It's what you wanted and you found you could trust it. That's the Holy Spirit of God. That's not you. You didn't do that. So in all these things, Paul is saying to people who are in great trouble, who are in great sin, his words, his first words are not to them. Stop sinning. Cut it out. You're going to go to hell if you keep doing that. No, he, he does warn them soberly, right? We see that in verse 9. But God's warnings are always designed to cause us to flee to God's promises. God's warnings are always designed to get us to flee into God's promises for refuge. I always think of the picture when I think about that principle. I think of the picture of Aslan, you know, and C.S. Lewis, the lion... And he roars, not to get the children to run away, but to get to the children to run to him and grab onto his fur and hide under his strong shoulders. So Paul is saying, hold on to who Christ is for you and who you are because of him. The Holy Spirit saying the same thing to us today. For to conquer sin, to live in the power of the Spirit, This is the foundation of all things that we have to hold on to. It's not the only thing, but it is the primary thing. It is the central thing. Remember Paul's famous words in Galatians 2. Galatians was a church very concerned with being a holy church. They were really concerned with being a godly, holy people. And they were failing at it completely. Why? Because they were relying on their obedience. They were relying on their righteousness. Instead of on the gospel. Instead of on Christ. And Paul rebukes them over and over again. One of my favorite sections starts in two. It goes through three. I'm I'm using the New Living Translation here because I just think it's such a, it's a really fair, well done way to communicate this. But here's what, here's what he says in the New Living Translation. 
to this church that's losing hold of the gospel, that's losing hold of who they are in Christ. I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, Paul says, I live in this earthly body by trusting the Son of God, not trusting him to give me power so I can earn my salvation. No, I... I trust that he had already loves me and he already gave himself for me. It's a settled deal. And then Paul says, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there would be no need for Christ to die. And after reminding them that Christ did indeed die for their sins, and he told them that, and it changed them, he says, let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. It knocked the doors off your life. It exploded in your hearts. You found new power you'd never had to fight sin before in your own strength. So then Paul says in verse 3, How foolish can you be after starting your new lives in the Spirit? Why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It's because you believe the message you heard about Christ. They've already heard the message. They've already been born again. But Paul is saying implicitly here, you can't move on from that. You can't, now that you've got the message right, you got born again, you can't lay that aside. No, it's your daily strength to come back to that truth, to come back to who Jesus is for you, offered for all of your sins, past, present, and future. He's your righteousness. You stand now righteous in him. You have to feed on that. You want to obey the law? You got to feed on that. You want to live right before God? You got to feed on that. You think he's going to take your performance and be pleased with that? No, no, no. Love the Lord your God. But love comes from knowing I'm loved. Not from serving him in fear. So Paul's not against righteous living. He's, he wants righteous living. He's against forgetting that Jesus has already made us righteous in God's eyes. He's against us trying to build our own righteousness, to be saved by our own righteousness. He's against us forgetting, either on purpose or just letting it drift away, who Christ is for us and who we are because of him. And, and this, this happens to us. It just, it's just really possible Last week I got sick. Before I got sick, I got I was just in a pretty discouraged place about a couple of different things. I felt very much like 5,000 pounds were on my back. And then I got some sort of bug. They just, those two things came together and hung out. And <laughs> off I was to bed for several days. And primary, I had a sore throat. Primary symptom was just absolute exhaustion. Like, you know those kind of sicknesses where you... You, there aren't a lot of other things going on, but you go downstairs and you think you're feeling better because there's no, like, it's not like you're, 
have stuff coming out of your ears and your nose and coughing all the time. So you think, I must be okay. Well, then you go downstairs and you make lemonade and you feel like you've just run four marathons. Oh my gosh, I made lemonade. I have to go back to bed now. That's, that's the kind of thing it was for me. So as I came out of it, I started reading this, this book that uh, I've been asked to read by a mentor. And it was on the gospel and, and dealing with theological issues about the gospel and implications for being a pastor holding on to the gospel or being a pastor not holding on to the gospel. And, and as I did it, I just, I just realized that I, I had been unconsciously, implicitly living without realizing it in the carbon monoxide of my own performance my own hope in myself. I, I couldn't see it while I was in it, right? That's what the dangers of carbon monoxide are, right? Like you, everything seems normal, but you find out, like, when you're dialing 911 and you can barely breathe, or, or when they find you, <laughs> that, that you've been breathing poisoned air that's... Well, that's how it felt when I was looking through this book. I was like, oh my gosh. Like, I've been bearing my hope on myself. I've been bearing my righteousness on myself. Not in... Who Christ is for me. When you do that, when I did that, you really start to quench the flow of the Holy Spirit. Because God's, number one, this is how he works. He works through faith. Paul just got done telling this. He works through our conscience depending on him. He works through, the Holy Spirit comes into us as we continues in us as we continue to trust in his promises here. Secondly, we quench the flow of the Spirit because God's not going to let us go on sinking that we've got what we need in ourselves. Because then we're stealing his glory. So he's going to frustrate that. And we don't want to do it anyway because it just leads to pride on one hand or exhaustion on the other hand. Probably both and all kinds of other doors it opens. It's It's horrible. And so what God does here in this passage is he's calling us to this place of rest before we try to bring anything to him. He's calling us to this place of joy and peace and hope before we try to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. He's calling us to what I think George Mueller called a soul happy in the Lord. A soul happy in the Lord. There's a beautiful little quote from George Mueller. He was a, I think he was a 1800s, um, uh, Englishman who did amazing things for God. I won't go into it, but he saw many, many miracles in his work for orphans in England. Here's what he said. He, he said, I saw more clearly than ever. This is about his own spiritual journey and a big breakthrough he had. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord How I might glorify the Lord. Important. Important. (laughs) But not the first thing. But how I might get my soul into a happy state. And how my inner man may be nourished. I saw the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the word of God and to meditation on it. He's talking about building his life on the foundation of God's truth and not his performance. Martin Luther writes even more boldly about what it means to abandon hope in yourself and depend on, on Jesus. He says, although I am an unworthy and condemned man, my God has given me in Christ all the riches of righteousness and salvation without any merit on my part. 
out of pure, free mercy. So that from now on, I need nothing except faith, which believes that this is true. Why should I not therefore freely, joyfully, with all my heart, with an eager will to do all things, which I know are pleasing and acceptable to such a father, who has overwhelmed me with his inestimable riches? There's an order in, in Mueller and Luther here. It's what God has done for me, who I am because of that. And then, out of that, I serve. Out of that, I walk with him. Out of that, I rest, even as I work. Do you know the difference... between fighting your sin out of the fear of consequences of what that might bring versus fighting your sin because it just doesn't taste very good in light of how much God loves you and what he's given you in Christ. It's two different worlds. Sometimes we do need those warnings from God. He's a good father. He won't fail to warn us. But he is never satisfied for us to be motivated by warnings and fear. It's never satisfying to him. It's never satisfying to us. Oh, but even in the midst of your struggle to sin, to hold on to who you are in Christ and say, no, I am righteous in him. God, I'm not living as righteously as I want to. I don't see the fruit like I want to. But I am righteous in you. You do love me. Nourishing on that and then watching that sin become less and less attractive. Not because so much because you're afraid. But because you're in love with your father who loves you. That's what feeding on who Christ is for us and who we are because of that does. So how do we do it? Well, a a big clue is right here in our message this morning. David says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Our Lord said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Paul said, let the word of Christ Dwell in you richly. And finally, faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. So most of all today, the application is, get the word of Christ into your soul. Albert, get the word of Christ into your soul. Are you doing that? Am I doing that? Are you living on him through his word as your food? Like you would your eggs and your subs and your steaks. Are you hearing it often enough that it creates in you real functioning, soul-filling faith? This is where our power comes from. This is the most important way, not the only way, but the most important way that we make room ready for the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Piper gives perhaps the best analogy I've ever heard about how the Word of God and the Spirit of God conspire together to empower us, to fill us and strengthen us. And I want to remind you of it again. I've used this analogy before. Imagine you're a lamp. You're dark. There's no power. You've got a light bulb, but you're off. All is dark inside and outside. Piper says the Word of Christ 
is like a wall socket. And our faith is like a plug. And when we plug our faith, when we take our faith and we plug it in to the word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit is the electricity that runs from the outlet through the plug and fills the bulb with light and power and warmth. So that when hopelessness comes calling, when condemnation comes calling, when sinful desires come calling, we say what Luther said. In myself I am nothing. But I'm not in myself. I'm in Christ. I'm righteous in Him. I'm blameless and holy before God in Him. I am... I have nothing in myself. I have nothing in myself, but I'm not in myself. Jesus is in myself. Jesus is in me. He's my power, and in him I'm able. And this kind of life is possible for us every day if we keep the truth of what Christ has done for us and who we are in him. We keep fighting for that in our hearts. Just going to close with this. Just a couple of practical solutions, suggestions about what this looks like. Know where to go in the Word of God to fight this kind of fight. Know it. Find those places in God's truth where you can run to. For me, Galatians 2 and 3 are just like Riches, 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 riches that pay over and over and over again. I don't know if there's a more important verse functioning in my life right now than I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained by observing the law, then Christ died for nothing. There's power in it. When I send my heart to it, the Holy Spirit meets you. You'll have different verses. You're God's unique kid. He'll have different words to give to you to feed you with in me. But those gospel places... Are places to start, places to stay, places to thrive off of. Hebrews 10, incredible gospel truth. Hebrews 10, Ephesians 1, incredible truths about our identity in Christ. Romans 8, particularly verses 31 through 34. Isaiah 53, the whole chapter. Ephesians 2. These are places to go. These are places to meditate and reflect and to mine. To write things down in index cards. Or to have ready on your phone. To know how to get to those places which remind you who Jesus Christ is for you. And who you are because of that. Know where to go to fight this way. And make sure that gospel truth is a regular part of your biblical diet. Not every part of the Bible has the riches of the gospel as clearly and as concentrated as other passages. So know these places. Galatians 2 and 3, Hebrews 10, Ephesians 1 and 2, Romans 8, Romans 3. I can give you others, but those are some of my go-to places. Books, great gospel-rich authors that God has given us in the last few decades particularly. Jerry Bridges is, is my favorite. His book, The Discipline of Grace... Another book, Bookends of the Christian Life. I know I've talked about these things, these books before, but I, they just keep giving. They're worthy to keep repeating. Michael Horton is a great gospel preacher, great gospel writer. 
J.D. Greer is a great gospel preacher, great gospel writer. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great gospel writer and great preacher. Go to gospel preaching. Use your podnet thing. You kids. (laughs) No, I know what it is. iPhones. Finally, I want to come back to something I said at the front. This passage starts out with a terrible warning, 9 through 11, that those who live unrighteously, those who live giving themselves over to sin, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And as I said earlier, that warning, like all warnings in the Bible, are designed to warn the sinner back into the promises of God that we have in Jesus. But they're real warnings. Like they they really have to resonate in our heart. They're meant to scare us away from sin. And last night, John Piper wrote something about this that I hadn't seen quite this way before that really blew me away. And I just thought I'd read this to you. The point of introducing the wrath of God and the danger of missing out on the kingdom of Christ is not to enslave people to unwilling and burdensome obedience. The point is this. Evangelical obedience from a renewed mind and a heart brimming with joy and thanksgiving is not optional. I really think that's in implicitly in this passage. These two options that Paul gives us, living a life enslaved by sin or living a life enjoying God's rescue through holding on to Christ and who we are in him. Piper goes on, Jesus said the same thing in John 3, 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This kind of warning is not a summons to legalistic fear and slavish, cowering obedience. Just the opposite. Both Jesus and Paul are warning us that getting rid of our legalistic fear, getting rid of our slavish efforts to obey God is infinitely serious. And this is the last paragraph. I love where this lands. When God reveals his wrath, his intention is not to contradict or hinder the gospel motives of faith and freedom and joy. Just the opposite. The revelation of his wrath is the intensification of his demand that we trust in his mercy and delight in his grace. Listen to that last sentence again. There's a lot here to chew on, I know. This last sentence again. Listen to this. The revelation of his wrath. These warnings we're seeing in verses 9 and 10 is the intensification of his demand that we trust in his mercy and delight in his grace. Do you see that principle going on here in these passages? It's like God is scaring the crud out of them in verses 9 and 10 and then delighting the crud out of them in verse 11. Wherever you are in the spectrum today, you may have walked in here lukewarm. Eh. You may have walked in here blatant, blatantly rebellious and you know it. You may have walked in here as a guilt-ridden, miserable legalist. You may have walked in here as a self-satisfied, happy legalist who's really doing great in the Lord and is really focused on that and counting on how awesome you are in God. You may have walked in here completely not interested in God. 
wherever you walked in on that spectrum, if you walked in one of those spectrums, God has no options for you this morning but to run to his son. Whether it's for the first time or the 5,000th time, there's no one else who can save you. You either get his wrath, his punishment for sin in hell, or you get Jesus Christ and his saving grace. By, by trusting and depending on that and holding on to that. Those are the options for you. I, so if you don't know the Lord this morning, I just, I just pray that you come and talk to me, talk to John, anybody you saw, talk to Terry, talk to anybody in this room who'd like to talk to you about Jesus. Because we, this is what we're about. We've got to hold on to this. We're not not here to play church games. This is the gospel. This is the power of salvation. This is it. This is where hope is. There's no other name. Not your name. His name by which you might be saved. And that's sobering. That's intimidating. But that is what Piper says. It is mercy and delight. When we come back to that refuge. When we flee from his warnings into his arms. Let's say, I am your righteousness. In me and no one else is righteousness and strength. Depend on me. Trust in me, not yourself. Trust in Jesus, not yourself. That is freedom. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, please, please help us. Make all of this true in our hearts. Lord, I just, I just want to sing to you now and call the band up here. Let's sing that new song, okay? Yeah. God, we love you. We pray that you would sear the gospel afresh into our hearts and feed us on the richest food, Jesus Christ and his love for us. In his name we pray, amen.